Greeting, guys. Hello, how are you guys? Good, I can hear Brendan. I can always hear Brendan. Faithful Brendan. I uh, hope you enjoy the sunny weather today and that you now enjoy the rainy weather on the way home. Hopefully the thunder won't bother us too much. Let's pray as we get into this last part of 1 Samuel. <clears throat> God, our Father, we thank you again for the gift of your word. And we pray right now that you would help us to immerse ourselves in what you say. That we would know the story of your people from old and that we would see Jesus afresh again. Please help us to be changed more like him as we look at your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Does anybody know how many people are currently living in the whole world? I can hear whispers of seven billion people. Seven billion people currently live on the earth. Just over the last few years, that number has clocked over to seven billion, and it's rising each day as we go. Okay, so if there's seven billion people in the world, and there's about 120 people in this room tonight, that means we are 120 out of seven billion which is this percentage of the population. This is, right here, 0.0000000171412867% of the whole world's population. That's not very much, is it? I hope you're feeling small tonight. Okay, so 7 billion people in the world. Does anyone know... How many people have ever lived? Full stop. What? 98 what? Billion? No, it is. Statisticians say 107 billion people have ever lived on planet Earth. That means that in this room today is this percentage of all humans who have ever lived. 0.0000000, 0.0000000, got to get it right, uh, 11215% of all people who have ever lived sitting in this room. Do you feel special? You feel small, don't you? When you realize that we are that percentage of all people who have ever lived, 107 billion people. And I think this is how Saul would have felt as he came to this last part of the story in 1 Samuel, as he faced the huge Philistine army that was coming up against him, and as he faced the day of his death and God's judgment. So let's have a look. For the last 10 or so chapters, it's been Saul versus David. Do you remember the story? David has been, Saul has been chasing David all over the Israelite countryside, doing everything that he can to kill David. But if you remember last week, David spares Saul's life on multiple occasions. And so he lets David live. David still lives, but he's still afraid, so he flees for protection to the Philistines. And in the meantime, in chapter 28, the Philistines come up and line up as a huge army against Saul. And, as you would expect, Saul is terrified. So what does he do? Amazingly, he consults the Lord. He asks the Lord what he should do, which he hasn't done for a long time. 
And what does the Lord say? Nothing. Silence. And so Saul does one more utterly sinful thing. It's like the icing on the cake of all the sinful things that Saul has done. He does this one thing. He goes to a medium. He can't hear from the Lord, so he chooses to go to someone who speaks to the dead. And who does he call up? Dead Samuel. He calls up dead Samuel. And Samuel, he's really not happy about this, is he? Samuel is furious. Listen to what he says in 28.17. It's on your outline. The Lord has done exactly what he said through me. The Lord has torn the kingship out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. You did not obey the Lord and did not carry out his burning anger against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this to you today. The Lord will also hand Israel over to the Philistines along with you. Tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. And the Lord will hand Israel's army over to the Philistines. Those are not the words that you want to hear, are they? When you go to ask God what to do. Dead Samuel says, because you have done what you've done, you are going to have you are going to die tomorrow. You have twenty four hours to live. Saul is terrified, as you can imagine. He's even more terrified than he was before. And so here in chapter thirty one we see Saul faces the Philistines and the tragic day of his death. Well, in the first few chapters, first few, first few verses of chapter 31, the scene changes back to Israel, back to the battlefield, and it's chaos. The Philistines are overpowering and slaughtering the Israelites. Israel has no hope. They're dying left, right, and center. The Philistines have completely overtaken Israel, and they've even caught up to Saul and his sons. And then Saul loses three of his own sons. And if it's not hard enough to lose your sons, your heirs to the throne, Jonathan is one of them. Did your heart break as you read that before? Saul's actions have even led to the death of Jonathan, the great warrior who fought the Lord's battles and trusted in him, the one who was a faithful and devoted friend to David, devoted to him whatever the cost the one who is going to be David's right-hand man when he became king. It's awful, isn't it? And so as the battle rages on, Saul is finally wounded by an arrow. He can't bear the shame or the torture that he will have to endure. And so he asks the armor-bearer, please kill me. The armor-bearer is too afraid. He can't do anything. And so Saul takes matters into his hands one more time. He falls on his sword and kills himself. And so within the first four verses of this chapter, Samuel's words have been fulfilled. Saul and his sons are with him now. They're lying dead on Mount Gilboa with countless other Israelites. This really is the worst case scenario for Saul. But it gets worse. When the Israelites see that Saul and his sons are dead, they're watching from a mountainside and across a river. What do they do? They flee. They're terrified. So they run away and the Philistines take control of their towns. 
They wanted a king who would get them security from the Philistines. But look where Saul has led them. And just when we think that things couldn't get any worse, they do again. As if Saul's death and Israel's defeat isn't bad enough, the next day, as the Philistines are going through the bodies, collecting the weapons and the valuables, they find Saul's body. And what do they do? They utterly humiliate him. Have a look at verse 9. Look down at it. They cut off Saul's head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to spread the good news in the temples of their idols and among the people. Then they had his armor put in the temple of the Ashtoreths and hung his body on the wall of Bethshan. The Philistines throw a party to end all parties. They parade the news around, probably with Saul's head on a stick. They place his armor in the temple to say, this is the defeat of Israel's God and the victory of our gods. And then what do they do? They hang Saul's naked, headless body on the wall of the Israelite town that they have just conquered. It's a loud and clear statement for anyone who can see that. Israel and Saul are totally defeated. The Philistines have conquered. It's gruesome, isn't it? It's almost too hard to read, too hard to picture in our minds. But what's harder to imagine is what's behind the story. What did Samuel say the day before? Tomorrow you will be with me. Do you remember all those weeks ago when we saw Saul, when we saw Saul uh, chasing donkeys through the wilderness, searching for donkeys, and his servant said, Why don't we go and see Samuel? Everything that he says comes true. Well, everything that God has said through Samuel has come true, hasn't it? God's judgment has finally and fully come on Saul. Finally, all his wickedness has caught up to him. God in his justice has removed himself from Saul and removed Saul as king of Israel. The book of 1 Samuel shows us Yet again, sin is serious to God. And he always does what he says he will do. And I don't know about you, but I feel so sorry for Saul. I know in home group, as we discussed it this week, we felt sorry for Saul. And at times it seems so hard. He seems like he's trying so hard to do the right thing. And it's tempting to think, God, you're so harsh to Saul. Why? But we have to realize that his sin is deserving of God's judgment. We have to realize that his sin and our sin is no different. Our sin deserves God's judgment, but in his mercy, he relents. And so we are left at the end of this chapter with an impressive man who used to stand a head taller than all of Israel, but now hangs headless and naked on a wall. It's tragic, isn't it? And it's a, it's a brutal image of war and where Saul's actions have led him. But then thankfully, some faithful Israelites try to redeem the situation as best as they can. Have a look down. From verse 11 onwards, some brave men from Jabesh Gilead, what do they do? They sneak up to the wall by night and they take down the body of Saul and his sons, take them back and give them a proper burial. 
you remember who Jabesh are? Early, back in the days of uh, Saul's early reign, Jabesh was the first town that Saul saved after he became king. Do you remember when he cut up his ox and sent it all throughout the land of Israel as a way of rallying everyone to him to fight? That was Jabesh that they went in and saved. And so now Jabesh returned the favor. They do everything that they can to save Saul, cover his shame and humiliation, and give him a proper burial. And that's the story of the death of Saul. It's short and simple and horrifying. But someone has been missing from the story. Who is it? David. Where's David? Well, so we're going to, to find out what David is doing, we have to dip into 2 Samuel. So we're going to look at the first chapter of 2 Samuel. Have that open in front of you to see how David responds. So while all of this has been happening to Saul and Israel, David has been chasing down the Amalekites who came and raided them and took all their family and possessions away. So he hunts them down and he kills them and he gets every last family member and possession back. Praise God. And then soon after, David gets word on what has happened to Saul. Have a look. uh, 2 Samuel 1 verse 1. After the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed at Ziklag two days. On the third day, a man with torn clothes and dust on his head came from Saul's camp. When he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David asked him, where have you come from? He replied to him, I've escaped from the Israelite camp. What was the outcome? Tell me, David answered. The troops fled from the battle, he answered. Many of the troops have fallen and are dead. Also, Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Imagine being David for a moment. Hearing those words, Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. How would you feel? Would you feel relieved because the one who has been chasing you down, Saul... He's finally dead. Would you feel worried and upset and concerned for the Israelites who have been killed and had their lands overtaken? Would you feel the deep, deep sorrow for the loss of your deep and loyal friend, Jonathan? We see David's response in verse 11. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And all the men with him did the same. They mourned, wept, and fasted until the evening for those who had died by the sword. For Saul, his son Jonathan, the Lord's people, and the house of Israel. David doesn't see this as good news. David's not relieved. And so he expresses his deep sadness for the rest of the day. But David wants to confirm that what his, the story that he's heard is true. And so he asks the man who he is and how does he know this information. Who is the man? Well, first of all, he's an Amalekite, an enemy of Israel. And second of all, in verses 6 to 10, the man confesses, I killed Saul because he asked me to. And when we hear that, when we read that, we think, hang on, that's, that's not what just happened in chapter 31, is it? That's not the guy who killed Saul. Saul fell on his own sword and died. Clearly, 
this Amalekite is lying. He's made up this story that he killed Saul, David's enemy, so that he can get favor with David. But what's David's response? It's definitely not favor. Have a look at verse 14. David questioned him, How is it that you were not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David summoned one of his servants and said, Come here and kill him. The servant struck him and he died. For David had said to the Amalekite, Your blood is on your own head because your own mouth testified against you by saying, I killed the Lord's anointed. Yet again, we see the faithfulness of David, don't we? He didn't see Saul as his enemy. He saw Saul as the Lord's anointed, the one God has made king. And so David is faithful to Saul one last time. He punishes the man who claimed to kill him. Here is another sign. David will be the faithful king that his people need. And so, in short, that's the story of 1 Samuel. Israel's quest for a king. And the rest of 2 Samuel, as Kevin was saying before, is about how David becomes king and how he rules over God's people. David becomes the leader that Israel really need. So keep reading it and see the great things that happen in 2 Samuel and in 1 Kings and 2 Kings. But it's worth stopping and thinking for a moment where we started all those weeks ago at the beginning of 1 Samuel. The beginning of 1 Samuel starts with a leadership crisis. God's people are politically unstable. Their enemies continually attack them. Whoever their leaders are, they rise up. And whilst they might be good for a time, they either die or they're evil and ungodly. And so Israel is led into greater sin and war again. And so, how's the situation looking at the end of 1 Samuel? It's the same story, isn't it? If not, it's even worse than the beginning of 1 Samuel. God's people are again leaderless and taken over by their enemies, the Philistines. And all along the way, their leaders haven't helped them. Eli the priest, Saul, they did a hopeless job. Samuel was good, but the people didn't listen to him. And now we have David, the greatest king of Israel, the one that God specifically chose, the one who is compared to all other kings after him. David will go on to be the leader that Israel really needs. But even he failed on multiple accounts, as we've already seen in 1 Samuel and as you'll see in 2 Samuel. What kind of lead, leader did Israel really need? Well, the book of Hebrews talks about this. Hebrews 7.26 on your outline says this, For this is the kind of high priest we need. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Israel wanted a king like all the other nations, but what they really needed was a king not like the other nations. In fact, what they really needed was someone not like the 107 billion humans who have ever lived. Israel wanted a king, but they needed someone else. They needed holy, innocent, undefiled, someone who does not ever sin. That is not Saul. 
David's better, but it's still not him. But it is Jesus. God has provided us with the leader that we need, Jesus. He is totally sinless, always obedient, constantly loving to God and his neighbor. Jesus is the leader we need because he is perfect. Now, for most of us, that's no surprise, right? We learned that in Sunday school, or we teach that in Sunday school. We're so used to saying, Jesus is perfect. Jesus never sinned. Jesus always did what his Father in heaven asked him to do. Just rolls off our tongues. And it should. We should never give that up. But do we stop to consider what that actually means? Or can we put ourselves in the shoes of God's people who didn't have Jesus? Israel didn't have the perfect king, Jesus, in those days. They had Saul, the king who led them to a worse situation than they were in before. They had David, who was better, but still an adulterer and a murderer. They had evil king after evil king until their nation was destroyed. And when we put ourselves in the shoes of those people before our perfect king, Jesus... I think we begin to realize we take Jesus for granted. And we realize of all the kings of Israel, none of them has done what Jesus has done. And we realize that of all the seven billion humans on earth today, none of them have done what Jesus has done. And of all the 107 billion humans who have ever lived, Not one of them has done what Jesus has done. Always listened to God, always loved God, always loved his neighbor. And not one of those 107 billion has loved God and his neighbor to the same extent that Jesus has. He died a forsaken and painful and undeserved sin-bearing death to love us and to obey his Father in heaven. Hebrews 13, on your outline, puts it like this. He's talking about how Jesus' death is so much better than the sacrifices of the Old Testament. He says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkling those who are defiled sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of the Messiah who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. Jesus, the Messiah, the King, the one without blemish, totally free from sin. He is the leader we need because no one has ever done what he has done and no one ever will. One in 107 billion, totally unique. What else did the one without blemish do? In that verse, he offered himself as a sacrifice to God for us. He was hung up, naked and ashamed. He wasn't ashamed. He was hung up naked and shamefully on a cross. He cleansed us and our consciences from dead works, from sin and guilt and shame. Jesus is the leader we need. He does what no human has ever been able to do and at the same time 
covers our sin and failure and restores us to peace with the God of the universe. And so how should we respond to this book of 1 Samuel, this story of a leadership crisis, and this King Jesus who solves our leadership crisis? First of all, don't get bored with Jesus. Jesus is literally one in 107 billion. Unique among all humanity, God in the flesh, sinless, perfectly obedient, perfectly loving, he is beyond comparison. There never has and never will be anyone like him. And he died for you. The perfect sinless one hung on a cross for sinners like you and me. Jesus is not boring. So don't get bored with him. It's so easy for us to take him for granted, isn't it? To let the gospel wash over you. When I sit down to read his word in the morning, there are a million things that want to, want to distract me, things that I think I need to do or want to do. And so Jesus can seem boring to me. But we need to remember Jesus is one in 107 billion. We need to encounter him in his word, see him for he, who he really is, see what he really does and the life that he really calls us to because it is not boring. First, don't get bored with Jesus. Second, the writer of Hebrews says that the reason we've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus is to serve the living God. The reason that this one in 107 billion man lived a perfect life and died for us is so that we could do what we were created to do, to serve the living God. It's true, isn't it? Christianity is not about rules and regulations. It is about serving the greatest God and King, the one worthy of all our devotion, the one worthy of having our lives and our weeks shaped on. Not having our lives and weeks shaped on what the world says or the things that we desire. All because he has been immeasurably good to us. And he is not boring. One in 107 billion. So let's serve him and let's serve the living God with all our lives. Let's pray for God's help. God, our Father, thank you for the book of 1 Samuel. Thank you that in it you have showed us your faithful love to your people, despite their continued sinfulness. Thank you that you judged your people with justice too. Thank you for the story of Saul and David, that you show us how you achieve your purposes, even through sinners like them and us. Father, thank you most of all for our Saviour and King Jesus, the leader that we really need. Thank you that he always loved you, always loved his neighbours. Thank you that he loved us, that he gave up his life for us, that he bore the punishment for our sin. Lord, help us never to grow bored of Jesus or take him for granted. Help us to respond to his greatness and goodness to us by serving you with our whole lives. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.